First Thessalonians chapter one. Verse number five, we will finish chapter one this evening. So let's start reading there in verse number five. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost so that you are examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I ask your blessing now upon the service. Lord, please control what I say and how I say it. Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, help me to speak clearly tonight without distraction. Lord, use this to draw us closer to you. Please do a, a genuine work on our hearts that will help us in our walk with you. Let us see the truth of your word. Lord, may this time not be in vain. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored by all that is said and done. Again, Lord, if anyone is here that has never been genuinely converted, Lord, we pray for that conviction, that power that's even spoken of in this chapter to do the drawing tonight and to bring that person to a place of repentance. Lord, please work. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Of course, we're back here tonight again in 1 Thessalonians uh, this evening. This is a great book, certainly one that is needed uh, uh, for us, especially in our day. We do live in the perilous times, in this ever-changing world. Um, Things have changed so dramatically, not just with COVID, and we're seeing governments change, and we can see things really even setting up for the, the tribulation time frame. I mean, we would be ignorant with our head in the sand to deny that. Um... But not, not just in those in that regard, but just think of how much has changed since what we're, we're since 2010. Think of how much has changed in this world. How evil is good and good is evil. I mean, it was true even in 2010 to some extent, but that's multiplied to a much greater level to the day that we're in now. In some ways, although there, there's certainly a difficulty here in the day we live in. It's also exciting to think of the time that God has appointed us to be alive. The time that God has appointed us to be the lighthouse to this world. We knew, the Bible tells us, this day is coming. The fact is, the United States of America has been somewhat in a parenthesis of what has been the norm for Christianity since the first century. Let's not forget that. We're seeing a return really to the norm. 
for instance. And this is how this, this, this book helps us. Think, Paul, as I stressed in the introduction of this book, Paul rejoices over this church, more so than any other church. I mean, he's excited about them. I, remember, he had the Macedonian call when he's in Troas. He heads over into Europe for the first time. He preaches in Philippi. A church gets established as a result of, of him being put in prison unjustly. And then he leaves Philippi. And he comes to Thessalonica. And again, as we're going to see, and I, I might get to it more, maybe more later. It was after three Sundays of preaching, of course, that the uproar, uproar takes place and he had to leave. But keep in mind, it is very, very likely that Paul was in Thessalonica for months, not just three weeks. That's dealing with the events that took place there up to the uproar. Because remember, the Church of Philippi sent at least probably two offerings to him while he was in Thessalonica. That had to take some time. Plus, we know he got employed while he was there. That implies time when he was there. The reason why I'm laying that now is because today we're going to see a strong measure of growth in these believers. That implies pastoral care that was taking place by Paul himself in their life. And this church, remember, Paul, he rejoiced over them. You can think of all the churches that Paul was dealing with major issues. He didn't have to with them. That's why he's rejoicing. I mean, think of what took place in many of the churches on his first missionary journey in Galatia. They left the gospel. When you read the book of Galatians, it's shocking, isn't it? They left the gospel. Incredible. Paul is trying to correct that as the Judaizers had come in and twisted the gospel. Did they believe Christ died on the cross? Yes. Did they believe he rose again from the dead? Yes. But they added to it. The devil still does that today, doesn't he? Adding to the gospel. Adding to the gospel to try and distort it and destroy it. Dealing with the mess that was down in Corinth, which is where he's writing this letter from. Writing the letter from, remember, Timothy had come. And had given a great report of what was taking place in Thessalonica. And he's sending this letter back now. And, and in Corinth, he, he, had, he ended up with such a mess on his hands. Now, this was his very first arrival in Corinth. The mess was getting ready to develop. It hadn't happened yet. But they had issues with pride. And how they were running their service was a disaster. They had sin in the church. And they thought they were spiritual because they weren't doing anything about it. Does that sound familiar in the day we're in today? <clears throat> so anyhow, Colossae had Gnosticism come in, and, and the church at Philippi really didn't have that, that many problems. I, it's, it's one of my favorite churches that he dealt with, is the church at Philippi. They had a small division between ladies taking place, and, uh, and that's really about it that's, that's mentioned there. But he rejoices over this church right here. And again, keep in mind, this church is strong. They don't exist in the Bible Belt. They don't. They don't exist in the Bible Belt. They lived in a very wicked, wicked culture. This was a large city. 200,000 to 250,000. The capital of Macedonia. A port. A cosmopolitan city with people from all ethnicities and all combined in there. Paganism Everywhere, crime was rampant. So they have incredible odds stacked against them. 
This isn't a church in, in North Carolina. This isn't a church in southern Georgia. They live in an incredibly strong pagan culture controlled by a totalitarian, uh, totalitarian government in Rome. And I know I can't speak tonight, or any day for that matter, so everything's normal, I think. Now, in our text, we have some things given to us of why Paul was so pleased with the church. What it was that was about this church that caused him to rejoice. He lists them. These are things which also teach us of what genuine conversion looks like. Because we are confused about that today. Now, I'm going to give, I have two points, but with the second one, I have several sub-points. I'm going to give those out now because that's really the bulk of the message. I'm going to give them out now for those who want to write them down so you don't have to, and then I'll explain them when I get to them there. Um, the two points, we're going to look at the receiving of the gospel, and the number two, the results of the gospel. Now, under that second point, I've got several D's here. I'm going to go through them quickly so you can, you can try and write down or write down fast. So I can just worry about explaining them when I get to them. Number one is going to be, we're going to see disciples with devotion. Number two, they had delight in difficulty. Number three, display for disciples. Number four, they declared with desire, speaking of the gospel. Number five, they had a directional dichotomy, and I'll explain that. I don't mean to use the dichotomy there, but I had no choice. I needed a D, and it fit really good. So they had directional dichotomy and then dreams of deliverance. So let's get into the first point, dealing with the receiving of the gospel. Let me, I'm going to grab a box of tissues up here for me real quick. <clears throat> let's go ahead and get into verse number five. He says, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. He's remembering what it was like when he preached there. But also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So he's thinking back when he got to Thessalonica and he begins preaching. He's remembering here, this is what's important about this. He is remembering what God did when he preached. This didn't happen every time he preached. What he's saying is, he recognized with what was taking place when he preached, he knew God was in this. There was something special taking place there. He said when the gospel arrived, it had three ingredients here. Really, we could say four, but three is what he deals with. The word, but not the word only, power and the Holy Ghost. And then fourthly, we could add their own life. And I'll tie that in and in here under this first point. So first of all, they did preach the word, but it wasn't the word only. The gospel is always in word. It has to be preached. It has to be spoken. We speak it. We tell others. We preach it. People have to be told. We all need that conviction much more in our life to determine to tell somebody. Maybe determine to try and speak it to one person a week, one person a month, but determine to give that truth out. Tell somebody. You have that truth. So, they, so when Paul arrived, they spoke it. They were going to tell others just like we need to do. And we have to determine to do that. But it wasn't just in word only, Paul said. There was also power involved here, and he knew it. He knew this word came in power. I mean, you can, you can see this guy coming from Philippi. Remember, he was severely beaten when he was thrown into prison there in Philippi. So here comes this guy. 
And, he's, and as we can tell from here, even though they had some Jewish converts, clearly the majority of the converts here were Gentiles, former pagans. They see this man coming who'd been severely beaten. He preaches with such power. He didn't come with vain, empty words. And the, the word for power is that word dunamis, which is the same where we get dynamite from. I mean, it was powerful when he spoke. It was persuasive. You know, we've seen, I've seen the gospel bring people to tears or bring people to anger. I remember, I remember the time I saw it, 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 it. Both happened at the exact same time. I've referred to it here one or two times. I was in Alabama uh, preaching in Lionsville, Alabama. And me and the pastor went out to go uh, uh, door-to-door basically on a Saturday. And we headed to the flea market. And, <coughs> excuse me, we got to the flea market there. And I'm going to need another one of these. We got to the flea market there. And there was a lady there that he did know. It was a small town there in Alabama. Everybody knew everybody. And, uh, um, and she was open to talking a little bit. So uh, um, she had a table selling her stuff, and she had a chair right there. And I sat down at the chair opposite her. This is an outdoor flea market, um, kind of stalls lined up, and a ton of people there. I think the whole town was practically there. And so I sat opposite, and her husband is standing to her left. And then the pastor is standing to my left over here. And so I begin to get into the gospel with her, and people start coming around. People start, a crowd begins to gather of probably, not a whole lot, but I'd say probably 10 to 15 or more people started to gather all around that table. And as I began talking with her, she told me, she, she was very hard to it, she let me know, so listen, I've heard all this before. She was really just super skinny, I think she weighed five pounds. And... Uh, um, her husband's not saying a word. He's just standing there, kind of like that. And uh, um, she said, I've been a member of a Baptist church. I've been a member of a Methodist church. I've been a member of a Presbyterian church. And she listed, I don't remember all of them, she listed like four or five different denominations that she's been a member of. And I said, I said, well, I said, that tells me even more why you should listen to me. I said, I think you're confused. I do. Just the fact that you can be members of all those churches tells me you might not understand. And she said, well, I'll listen. And so I'm going through the gospel and going through it. And now, and I'm tell, there's times, just like Paul says, there's times that you can recognize when God begins to work. It's not because of you. There's times he does. There's other times you're just like, I don't sense anything going on here. But this is one of those times, clarity of thought. The, the word's coming. I'm like, Lord's doing something here. And you can see her change. And, and I'm going through the gospel, and she kept on saying, I've never seen it like this. I haven't seen it like this. And then I'm near the end, almost completely done with it, getting ready to, ready to ask her, now, are you ready to put your faith in Christ? I never, I never had to get to that point. When it clicked, when I was through it done, I kid you not, and I didn't see it coming, she burst into tears. Head goes down, just crying, just crying. She said, I've never seen this. I've never seen this. She goes, I get it. I get it. And I said, would you like to place your faith in Christ? Yes. So I've seen people brought to tears over it, ready to trust it. The exact same moment, though, her husband was brought to anger. By the exact 
same words. He's furious. He's furious. Listen, when God begins, it moves. Paul knew when he came into Thessalonica, more than likely, it's going to do something. And it did. And he remembers, so when I preached, I remember what took place. I remember the power that was involved. And as we present it, that's the key to it. It's not our canned presentation. It's not your intelligence. It's not your ability to manipulate. It's not your ability to be attractive to the person. It's the message of the gospel when God works. It's always the key. Paul knew as he preached, things would change. He's remembered when I preached there, God was working. God was doing something. He knew this wasn't just one of those places where I'm preaching and I just got to shake the dust off my feet. There's response taking place. The people were responding. And that does happen. And then he gave the key to the power. He said also, and in the Holy Ghost. What led to the power that Paul had was not his knowledge, was not his personality, was not his status, but it was God's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is always the key to our power when we're witnessing, when we're giving God's word, when we're preaching. It's not the look at me moment. It's not my talents. It's not your ability to speak. It wasn't Paul's oratory skills. It was the simple fact that God's Holy Spirit was going to work. And there was a faithful man there that would preach it. That's what was taking place. Kind of like Zechariah, I believe it's 4.6. I think that's the text. I might be wrong on that. I should have looked it up beforehand. Not by might nor my power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's true throughout. So when they received the gospel, it came not just in word only. He saw God work. It was power as a result of the Holy Spirit. And with this assurance, he said, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. This is interesting here, isn't it? It deals with his boldness, the confidence he had when he was preaching. Listen, I was looking at some stuff today in our Baptist churches and just... Uh, Paul did not sit down and have a strategy meeting for Thessalonica. Do you know what he did? He didn't sit down and have some, uh, develop some cool sayings. He preached the gospel. That's what he did. He preached with power. He preached with confidence. He didn't come in with clever terms, heart-drawing statements. It wasn't a sugar-coated gospel. He simply preached in power what the people needed to hear. And his life backed it up. That made a difference to them as well. See, the quality of the message is always confirmed by the character of the person who's preaching it. They can see people traveling through and under religious means simply to get an offering. They knew that wasn't Paul. Paul got a job there. Paul started working there. He said, listen, what you all knew, you all saw how I lived. I wasn't there to collect money from you. I took nothing from you. Nothing. You saw why I was there. I was there for that message. There's people today that simply just serve God for the attention or for the offering. Remember back in, uh, what was it, um, August or July, um, I canceled a guy that was scheduled to preach on a Sunday night that afternoon. 
He preached at another church here Sunday morning. And then that afternoon, I, I would already had great reservations about it. I already come across some things that, in, our, in my discussions with him that I didn't like, that I wasn't thrilled with. And, uh, um, and then that afternoon, I remember I found some things on his social media page. And I realized, one, I realized several things. But one of them was, he's just in this for an offering. That's all this. This isn't about service. And so I went to him. At, he, was in, he was in our prophet's chamber. I went to him about 2 o'clock. I texted him after. I said, hey, when you get back from the church, I need to talk with you. And I went up to him and I said, I said, listen, I have to cancel you tonight. I said, I'm not going to have you speak. I said, I'm not going to embarrass you. I won't mention it from the pulpit. As far as my church is going to know, it's going to be a normal service. I'm just going to get up and preach. I said, you come, you sit in the service, but I'm not going to have you preach. And he said, well, why? What happened? And I said, I said, well, you know, we've already had some disagreements. You know that. We've dealt with those on the phone. And I said, but I, I said, last night, I said, I could not sleep. I woke up and I said, I went to your Facebook page. And I said, to be honest, I couldn't believe what you were sharing. And I said, I would not have you. I said, I said what if my teenagers go and look at that? I said, and, and I said, it's very possible they're going to see you and want to look you up online. And they're going to see that? I said, I can't have you preach. And he said, I understand. And anyhow, um, canceled him. He was, he was more just simply about the offering. That was it. So Paul understood here that when he was in Thessalonica, that when he presented the gospel, when he preached, the power of God did fall. God's spirit was working. And the truth is, when somebody hears the gospel in power, they know it. When it's not just some fleshly presentation of, of giving cool sayings, there's power result of God working. One of the greatest examples that comes to mind that many of you probably are already familiar with was when Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The reality is he didn't even preach it. He read it. He read it. That's all he did from his pulpit. We're not dealing with a form of manipulation like a field kid might do to stir up people. He didn't do any of that. He simply read the message. And what took place was incredible. He read the message, which you can still read it. Matter of fact, when I was in public school, that was a sign reading. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He simply read it. And this revival broke out. People begging for salvation. You know what happened? God's power fell. And was working in their life. And all of a sudden they realized in truth what it would be like to fall into the hands of of an angry God. <clears throat> Listen, and this is where I want to tie in with the cantata. We need to be praying that God works like that in our cantata. We will have lost people here. It'd be nice to see God's power just work and grip their hearts. Where they don't debate if they want to get saved. They can't wait to put their hand up. They can't wait to come down the aisle because they know they need it. Let's be praying today, because I don't know of another service. I mean, I hope that happens every service. Don't get me wrong. But we just don't have another service each year where we have more visitors than our Christmas cantata. <clears throat> now, wow, time has went much faster. That is the short point. Now Rob stopped. He didn't say it. He stopped his sentence, didn't he? I got a... There we go. I got the cough drop. I'm stuck around preaching. Things are going everywhere right here. If I spit it out, Ryan, just catch it. It'll be all right. Wow. All right, let's see where we're at here.
All right, we'll get through this. We'll get through this. I'll have you home by 10, I promise. I think this one will go quick. If I'm wrong, we'll find out in a few minutes. All right. So we, ha- we have how they received the gospel. Now let's look at the results of the gospel. Verse number six. So five, this is how the gospel came. Six, this is what happened. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word of much affliction with joy in the Holy Ghost. Let's cover these quickly. First off, we see here they have disciples with, with devotion. They became disciples. They became followers of Christ and of his men. They followed Paul. They realized what he preached and he taught. Listen, they believed it. There, there, wasn't, there wasn't a series of Paul begging them, please come to church, begging them, please change your life. They wanted to. Know what that's proof of? Conversion. A genuine conversion. Paul didn't have to argue with them why paganism was wrong. You know what they wanted? Well, hey, listen, this guy has truth. Let's follow. Let's follow. That's exactly what they did. And the Greek word that's used here for follow, it means to mimic little copies, to be an imitator. And this happened, again, not over years. This was upon conversion. They wanted to follow the Lord immediately. They had a desire to imitate what they saw. Not to try and still cling to the old life. That shows evidence of conversion, is what it does. In the same verse, we see they had delight in difficulty. It says, you receive the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is interesting here, isn't it? As we know, this church was born in affliction. Let's go back to Acts 17. We've covered it. Read how it began. Think of what these believers went through as a result of the start of the church and the culture they were in. Here's some of the battles they faced in Thessalonica. Paganism was everywhere. Idolatry, paganism was everywhere. Not only have to deal with paganism, but the Greek culture, Greek intellectualism, the superiority complex, you know, all, all that. They had to deal with that. That was a battle for them. The Roman government, as well as the Jewish intolerance, those were all battles that they had to face in this small church in Thessalonica. And I don't know that this church ever grew to be large. Their influence in the world was incredible. But they had a lot of battles. Again, they're not in North Carolina. They're not in the Bible Belt. They're not under a Christian government. And when they faced this persecution and the suffering and the difficulty, they had joy. Many of them would have lost their jobs. They would have lost their family. They would have lost their friends. They knew what affliction was about. Yet they still had joy. Why? Matthew 13, Christ answers that question. Look over Matthew chapter 13. This is interesting. Two verses. Under the parable of the sower, 20 and 21. But he that received the word, seated to stony places, the same as he which heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, 
But get this. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Joy is gone. Joy is gone. Yet here's those in Thessalonica. Yet when tribulation and persecution come, the joy is strong. Why? Because they're actually converted. This group here, no doubt when they heard the word, they had an emotional joy. They had, they had a fleshly joy, a human joy, if you will. Maybe because they, 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 they were part of a new group. Maybe, they had, maybe the thoughts of it had alleviated some guilt that they had. I don't know what produced the joy, but it wasn't the result of conversion. Because we see here, with conversion, even when the persecution hits for your faith, the joy stays. It's not dependent. Remember, the joy that we have in Christ is based on a relationship with Him, not on, on circumstances. Not on circumstances. So, I, again, I find that just fascinating what takes place right here. When there was a cost for the Christianity with those in chapter 13, when the seed that fell on the stony places, they're gone. Yet those who are converted are ready to pay it. They're ready to pay it. So they still had their joy in the Lord, even though, they were, even though this was taking place. So they were followers. We see they had this joy. They delighted in the difficulty. Thirdly, a display for disciples, or an example for other believers. An example for other believers. I know that's a little stretch with the D, is a display for other disciples, but it works. Verse 7. So that you are examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Look what's, look what's taking place now with them. Look what Paul's saying about them. This is why he's rejoicing over them. He's like, he goes, look at how God is using you all. Even though you have much affliction, you still have your joy. You're followers of Christ. You're genuine followers of Christ. And you're even an example for other believers. You're a display for them. For the other disciples that are in Macedonia, that are in Achaia. He's saying, you guys have a major influence in the lives of others. All of Macedonia and Achaia, people were talking about them. Achaia, by the way, that's, that usually refers to, it's, it's just like Macedonia was a province, you have Achaia as a province as well. That's going down by Greece, southern, this is up, uh, 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 Macedonia is up north, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, Achaia is down south. <coughs> that's where Corinth is, which is the capital of Achaia, where Paul's writing this letter from, is from Corinth, which would be the capital. He's saying your influence is all over the place in these areas, so that those, those churches that were at Philippi, at Berea, in Corinth, they saw what was taking place with that church in Thessalonica, and they were now examples to all these other churches, to all these other believers. In other words, the church at Philippi would call their church at Berea for advice, if you will. They'd send a runner over. Hey, how do you think we should handle this? What are you guys doing? I mean, they knew something special was taking place there. It wasn't because they were in the Bible Belt. It wasn't. It was simply because of a desire to follow God. They became model Christians for others to follow. Think about that for a second. It should be convicting on us, and it should be something we strive towards. Is your life right now, is your life an example for other Christians to imitate. As I, as a pastor, could I go and say, listen, I want, you, I want you to follow Daniel McGovern. That's an example for you. Do what he does. 
Do what he does. You know, it's amazing. We live in a day when we're too busy apologizing for the Christian life. It makes me mad. It does. When I see those who are apologizing for trying to live right. <clears throat> they were a model for others, a display, if you will, for other disciples. They also declared with desire. They evangelized. They preached the gospel. Look at uh, uh, verse number 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but get this, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Amazing. Amazing. Declared with desire. They are preaching the truth. They had desire for this. They're proclaiming truth. Listen, think, they're under persecution. This would not be easy for them. Yet the word implies they did it with great boldness. Sounding forth, being strong when they proclaim the gospel. The word is used outside of scripture, like this in, in Greek, of blaring trumpet, of a rolling thunder. Paul's saying, this is how you all were proclaiming truth. Incredible. But they weren't hesitant. Again, they weren't apologetic for their message. They didn't sugarcoat the gospel. And think of their location, how God was using them. I love that. This, this is a trade center. People are coming in and out of Thessalonica all the time. Major port right there in the Aegean Sea. And so, as a result, the gospel is starting to be spread throughout all of Europe. I mean, who knows? Uh, this, this isn't, I mean, too far of a stretch. You can think of those who are coming to know Christ as a result of their efforts. Because Paul started this church. That many of us benefit from today. Think about that. What was it that ended up changing Europe from leaving the barbarian ways? It was the gospel. We're seeing it make its entrance into Europe. The very first church that Paul, or starting here, was Philippi. But the first church that he is proclaiming, you guys are having an effect on this continent, was the church in Thessalonica. They were in a strategic location. They were preaching the message with power. <clears throat> Verse number nine. He says, "For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how we, and how ye turned to God." from idols to serve the living and true God. Now I want to combine that a little bit with the last half of verse 8, where Paul said, listen, when it came to you, we didn't have to speak anything. Your testimony was spoke for itself. Then Paul comes into this in verse 9, for they themselves show us, those who were coming to Paul, what manner of entering in we had unto you, what God did when we, as a result of God starting the church there when we were there, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is the directional dichotomy. In other words, they had a new direction for their life. A 180. The opposite. They're going to hold another direction from the way they were. They're going, to, they're going a new way, a, a new direction with their life. They've turned from those dead idols. Remember all the paganism? You can just see, when, when, the, when they heard the gospel with power, how it made sense. I mean, I don't care who you are. 
I mean, don't worry, the devil's blinding. And there's a power in that. That's how anybody at all can, at any level, worship a stupid dead idol. That's how they can have knowledge that a man created this image and yet still worship it because of the blinding of the devil. But I am telling you, when all of a sudden you hear truth preached in power, it's not hard to accept. They knew this makes sense. How could it possibly be that stupid stone statue that's ever done anything? And boy, when they put their faith in Christ, they turned from those idols. Paul did not have to run a series on turning from your idols. They wanted it. They wanted the change. They had a directional dichotomy. They were going one way, now they're going another way. The the evidence of repentance was there. I mean, you can think of all the gods that would have been festival, like the Greek gods. Zeus, Hermes, Neptune. The gods of the East, like in Ephesus, Diana, uh, uh, would would have had an influence there in this town. Or the Egyptian gods still would have been present there, like Isis. I remember, who was it? uh, One of the great philosophers that said about Athens, how there there was more gods there than there were people. So when they heard the gospel and and were genuinely converted, they changed. They repented. They put off the old life. Their life went a new direction. Isn't it amazing today how churches are trying to form and establish, quote, converts that's basically telling them to this extent, you really don't need to change. You don't. That's not how this works. Listen, and really, I get how the devil's coming in and deceiving. I believe there are some that are genuine with a true desire to reach the lost that are simply deceived. Because the reality is, in the United States of America, almost since our beginning, we had a Christian culture. We did. There were many who were living the Christian life that end up getting converted. Because that's how the culture lived. That's not true anymore, is it? It's not. Our life should change. It shouldn't be arguing for trying to still hold to the old life. It should be, what does God want? I mean, it's about genuine worship of Him. Not making the, quote, worship songs about us. He carries you through the storm. It's so difficult. I would sing the God on the mountain is still the God in the valley. But, you know, I still want you all to like Ruth's voice when I'm done with that. (laughs) Wow, it's really alive here tonight. I think three people laughed at that. That was really good. Guys, you're making me feel good. I'll be up all night now. Thank you. I appreciate that. Their life changed so much, others told Paul about it. Paul, did you hear what's taking place there? It's amazing. It's amazing. He didn't have to tell. Paul didn't have to say, no, no, they've been converted. How many times do we have to say that? No, 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 they made a profession of faith. No, these were people coming to them, Paul, you've clearly been a Thessalonica. Those people are converted. By the way, think about this. Remember in missions conference we dealt with 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Guess, who that, guess what that chapter is talking about? What church? Thessalonica. The churches of 
Macedonia. That were in their affliction, in their poverty, yet giving sacrificially. Paul was using them as an example there too. He was saying, not as we hope, but first they willingly gave themselves. So when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it's talking about this church. They were an example. Those coming to Paul, Paul didn't have to say anything. They were telling Paul about it. Incredible. Lastly, see, we got through it. Dreams of deliverance or waiting on the return of Christ. Look at verse number 10. This is our first verse, which is one of the primary themes of both epistles here, first and second Thessalonians that we're going through, that deals with, and that is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. By the way, the very first time, really, we have a reference in any sort to the rapture. It is a pre-tribulation rapture that is mentioned. We are delivered from the wrath. So here it talks about something else that was a mark, a result of the gospel. Waiting on the return of Christ. Wanting to see him. Listen, the fact is, if you love him, you long to see him. Do you understand how motivating that is? Please think about it. This church believed, and we should too, because we really, really, really are likely, uh, 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 many of us here are likely to be alive when Christ returns. Again, I don't know when it is. It might be a thousand years. I understand that. But wow, are things setting up for the seven-year tribulation. It's incredible. This church believed strongly they would see the return of Christ. They were waiting for it. Again, they're waiting for it because they expect it to happen. That's motivating. I mean, when you believe it. The word used for waiting here, love it. This, when you break down words sometimes, I just get excited. I say, listen, listen to how this word is used. Not just here, just in general in the Greek language at that time. Used waiting for an employee eagerly waiting for his pay. Is that not perfect? Here's the second way it's used. I love, it makes so much sense why the Holy Spirit chose this word. It's also used in the sense of a person waiting for his deliverance. Amazing. Now when it came to the return of Jesus Christ, or the Messiah. Let's go ahead. The Jews misunderstood Scripture. They were confused by what they had in their Old Testament Scriptures, very much so. They recognized chapters like Isaiah 53, which we dealt with here on a Sunday morning not too long ago, how that there was proof of a suffering Messiah. All right? Most of their scholars recognized that. But then they also recognize a Messiah that was a conqueror that comes in to establish a kingdom that's not suffering. But their conclusion was wrong. Most of them wrote about this. Some would dismiss the suffering one and say that's not talking about the Messiah. But most were still faithful to it and say, no, this has to be the Messiah. What they concluded was this. There's two. Two Messiahs. There's going to be a suffering one and a conquering one. Well, they're wrong. 
it wasn't two. It was one Messiah who would both suffer and conquer. But when it comes to what Paul is dealing with, even Christians today, they almost have a, they have a similar confusion that takes place. You see, we read verses that talk about how Christ Returnment is imminent. It can happen at any moment. Yet we also know when we read Scripture, yet certain things have to take place, and it can happen yet. And that's true, too. Both are true. So how is that possible? Because just like when Christ came, there's two phases to it. There's two phases to his return. He comes for his people, then he comes with his people. When he comes for his people, that is imminent. It can happen at any moment. Nothing has to take place for that to happen. The rapture could happen tonight. Nothing has to be in place. We can just go. When he comes with his people, now, there are things in Scripture that have to be in place before that happens. Like the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven vials. The rise of the Antichrist. That will all have to be in place before that happens. All right? So here is his first reference to it and how it's going to be delivering us from wrath. And it will. We went through the book of Revelation. We understand what those seven seals, seven, tramp, seven trumpets, and those seven vials will bring upon this earth. The, and the, the, the pain and suffering and wrath grows with all of those. Not to mention, which I don't think we take that out of context at all, if we include hell in that. That God delivered us from his wrath in hell. Incredible. And so this was the church at the same time, because of what Paul's addressing, he knew that Timothy no doubt talked to them about it. They can't wait for Christ's return. They can't wait for it. Listen, that'll help motivate you. I mean, we all have those illustrations. I'm not going to use them. You've heard preachers, you've heard me use it. Think of just them in your own life when you were a child. And dad had been gone all day, but he was coming home. Or, let's, we got military kids. We got those who grew up in military families. I, I, I did not. I mean, I, my parents were divorced. But think of the time that dad had been gone a long time. Months. And he was coming home. Where you couldn't wait. You couldn't wait to see him. I remember the first time I got home from my, from my, uh, from Saudi in 1991. I left. Daniel was about one. When I left, I get back. I'm all excited. Um, finally, get back to the base. The bus drops us off. Marianne's there now with this pregnant with Heather, just just about full term with Heather. And there's Daniel. I go up to grab him, hug him. He screams his head off. I threw him on that cement down there right now. Made me feel so good. <laughs> But you can't remember that, what it's like. Listen, he's coming back. Our deliverance is there. Do you understand that's what helped them stay so faithful? That this is the key to their boldness in their witness, to trumpet out the truth. This is why they were imitating. He's coming back. We're going to meet him. The one that Paul preached about that rose from the dead, he's coming back. He is. He's coming back. Are you ready? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Is there anyone here right now, you say, Pastor McGovern, 
I am not sure that I'm a true convert. I don't know that I've truly been born again. I don't know for certain that heaven is my home. Pastor, I need you to pray for me. Will you just raise your hand where I can see it? Just, just put your hand up and let me see it. I see some small children. Anybody else? Just put your hand up for me. All right. And we will be praying for those children. I like how Jerry even said that on Sunday. To be praying for our small ones to come to the Lord as soon as they're able to. Christian, the Lord deal with you. This is the results of the gospel. So listen, when it came, it was genuine. This was real. This wasn't in word only. This was God working. These were converts. They followed us immediately following the Lord. Not only, not only did they do that, I, I mean, they became, even in their affliction, they had joy. They became an example for all the Christians in, all the brethren in Achaia, in, in Macedonia. They were preaching with such boldness. It was going out throughout all of Europe. The evidence of their changed life, everybody recognized. They were telling me about it. And that motivation behind all of it was knowing they were going to see the Lord. Is there something the Lord spoke to your heart tonight? Why don't you come and pray? Father in heaven, bless this invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Turn to page number 494, and if you need to come and pray, you come and pray.